Happy Sabbath. You know, when we meet in meetings like this, we usually think that the person up front is on stage and everybody else is the audience. Right? Yeah. Let's change that a little bit. We are all on stage. God is our audience. So I'm going to do my best. May not be up to your mark, but I'm going to do my best to speak well. What will you do the best? Listen. So don't go to sleep. <laughs> don't let your mind wander out there to a ball game or to your family or to even lunch. <laughs> Just stay right here and you and I, let's perform for God. Is that okay? God has placed in his church, first, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then, miracles. Followed by that is gifts of healing, the ability to be generous, the ability to organize well, and finally, the ability to speak in different languages. And we are exhorted, when we look at this hierarchy, because it says that it's a hierarchy, because it clearly says first, second, third, and then on, we are exhorted to earnestly look for the higher ones. But friends and brothers and sisters, fellow pilgrims, whether you are at the bottom of that list or in the middle of that list or at the top of that list, there is something that pervades all the spectrum. It is called the more excellent way. For if I I'm able to speak with the languages of humanity, with the eloquence of angels, and do not have that more excellent way, which is agape love, then all I am doing is not making music, but just an irritable noise like a gong. And if I have the gift of prophecy, understand all ministries, all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not this excellent way, this more excellent way, then I am a cipher. Nothing. And if I empty my bank balance, sell all my assets, and give it to the poor, and go to the extent of giving my body to be burned as a sacrifice, and do not have this more excellent way, then the record books of heaven, the credit balance will be exactly zero. Because this more excellent way suffers long and is kind.
does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not selfishly seek its own, does not get easily goaded into a reaction, thinks no evil, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never fails. It goes beyond prophecy, beyond language, beyond knowledge. For what you and I can do, talk about it only in a partial way. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part can be laid aside. For remember, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child. But when I became a man, an adult, then I had to put away those immature ideas. Similarly, today we can see in a mirror blurred and foggy and hazy. But there's coming a time when there will not even be a veil. It'll be face to face. Wow. Today I know only a little bit about myself. But one day, I will know as I am known through and through by God. There are three things that must remain because they are indestructible. For if faith gives up, it was only presumption. If hope loses its standing, then it was only wishful thinking. And if love dwindles down and dies out, then it was not true love. For in the midst of our despair and our hopelessness, and the hate that's all around us, three things will remain. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That more excellent way. Impressed? Not with me. Hey, hey, no, no, no. Impressed with that more excellent way? How about a description, a word picture. His face was marred, disfigured, more than any man. And his bodily form, more than the sons of men. Nations were amazed. Kings held their mouth. What they had not been told, they were willing to see. What they had not heard, they had to consider. Because who can believe this kind of a news? That God would reveal the right hand of his strength. Reveal the right hand of his strength when it is just a little, bitty, little sapling. And actually, more like a root out of dry ground. No form or structural attractiveness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we shall desire him. He is despised, rejected of men, 
a man of deep sorrows and well acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from him. He was despised, we didn't care. Surely, he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. And yet we acknowledged, confessed, and esteemed him stricken, smitten, not by Pilate, not by the Roman soldiers, not by the chief priests and rulers, but stricken and smitten by God. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that bought us peace was upon him. He was beaten and lashed. You and I were healed. All we like sheep. How many? All except me, right? No. All from there to there to there to there to there to there. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, afflicted, tortured. But never did he open his mouth to make one single complaint. He was taken as a lamb to the slaughter. And the sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth to make one single complaint. He was bound, taken through a mockery of a trial, and finally killed. For my, the transgressions. What's transgression? Willful violation of his law. For the willful violation of his law was he afflicted and tortured. And they made his grave with the rich and with the poor at his death. Because he had done no violence to anyone. Nor was any deceit or falsehood found in his mouth. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He really put him to grief. And when you make his soul not a lamb, not a bull, not some fine flour with oil. No, when you make his soul an offering for sin, then he shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. Therefore, I will divide him a portion of the great, and he shall divide the spoil among the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered in his time of death, not as a hero or as a martyr, but numbered with the common criminals. And he bore the sins of many, and he willfully and happily interceded for those who willfully violated 
his law. Are you listening? If we really must understand this, we need help. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God our Father, we really need you and your spirit because it's you who wrote this down. Goes contrary to what I think. But I confess that there is something there that I really need to know. I want to know. We want to know, Father. So we welcome your spirit. We want your spirit. Please send your spirit. Open these words to us so that we can understand. We need to know what happened. Grant this prayer, please, because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to say a few words this morning. Yes, still morning. But because I'm going to say these words, uh, the person who speaks must have be given the liberty to use certain words. So I'm going to use certain words. And I'm going to give them my own definitions, or maybe they're kind of general definitions as well. But they are some things that need to be discussed and kind of described before I tell you the story. So we're going to look at some of these words. Give me just a moment to wet my vocal cords. First word, justice. Boy, we think that's quite a word, right? Justice, being fair. It requires three things. All three starts with R. It requires a rule. And if you keep the rule, you'll get a reward. But if you break it, you'll get a retribution. And all three must be completely changeless and inflexible. Then it will be justice. Nor can you disregard the magnitude of what you're doing. If you make a big crime, then you've got to have a big punishment. And that's why right in the beginning, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And we think, ah, that's primitive. Yeah, revengeful. Hey, you've got to be a little bit more, you know, advanced. But that is the highest form of justice. An eye for a tooth, a life for a finger, would be utter injustice. Are you with me? Yes, that is why it is said, eye for an eye. Do you know every law in the law books, every section and subsection and caveats and descriptions are so that we will do this eye for an eye and make it exactly equal, as equal as we can possibly make it to be. That is justice. But if we must have justice among you and me, our relationship will simply break down. Because nobody can claim to have gotten all the rewards that they're supposed to get, or nor all the punishments that you are supposed to get. No. There's something else that comes along and helps a little bit. But we need to pull it out so that we can understand. 
It's called mercy. But mercy cannot touch justice. You cannot touch those three. Mercy comes in at only one point in its ultimate sense. If, can, if justice is an axe that must fall, mercy cannot stop the falling. It can come in at only one point. It can shift it to where it will fall. But it cannot stop the falling. If justice is a cannon, then mercy cannot stop the firing, the blast. But it can turn the cannon here. That is all that mercy can do and yet retain justice. For if we start tampering with the three, rule, reward, retribution, then it'll be arbitrariness. And once you get arbitrariness, then you can do what you want and you will have neither justice nor mercy. Mercy is mercy only because justice is inflexible and totally, utterly changeless. That is why we can talk about mercy. Righteousness, big word, right? Goes back to the medieval times of those who were in deep thought and you have a halo around the head. Righteous. But you know, righteousness has to do with what? How, how do you define righteousness? It's doing things correctly, right. That's righteous, doing it right. But you can do some things right with a bad plan. So then is that righteousness? No, 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 it won't work. Or you can do uh, something correctly with a good plan but a bad motive. So you see, the basis really seems to be motive. So you can do a good thing with a good plan, bad motive, ah, no way, that's not righteousness. You can do a mistake with a bad plan but a good motive, and that's acceptable. So what makes it unacceptable? What makes it acceptable? I've come to a very simple rock-bottom definition. Like I said, you've got to give me the liberty to use my words the way I want to. So here's my definition of righteousness. Four simple words. You first, not I. That's it. It is simple. It will run the deepest in your life. So in other words, at every, any given situation, where you are called upon to make a decision, you first, not me. That's the motive. That's the base. After that, even if you make a mistake, you are still righteous. Unrighteousness and sin then will be exactly the opposite. I first, not you. Oh, you don't have to do anything bad, my friends, to be unrighteous or be sinful, just place yourself first. Down you go. Every wicked deed on earth has come because of this simple principle, me first, not you. Heaven. Why describe heaven in terms of 
gold. Streets of gold. Have you heard that? Yeah. Gates, pearly gates. Wow. Foundations, wow, gems. Why that kind of a picture? Because our minds are warped. Just like this morning, Chad were, and Faria were telling us, we think things are treasures. The greatest treasure we think would be a chest full of diamonds. No, we've gone the wrong way. The greatest treasure on earth is a beautiful heart-to-heart -heart relationship. Heaven is not heaven because of the gold and pearls. Heaven is heaven because there's a beautiful person who you'd love to be with. And wherever he is, it's heaven. So when you and I forge a good, close relationship and become good friends, friends, brothers and sisters, fellow pilgrims, that is heaven on earth. And when we have a good relationship finally settled between us and God, then it is heaven. Heaven in heaven. And when that relationship is between God and God, then it is even better than heaven. Are you with me? Well, what's the opposite of heaven then? Hell. What do we think of hell? Oh, fire. And scald the skin and then, you know, scream out loud, eeks. That's what you think, right? Yeah, and well, there will be fire in hell. I can't controvert that because it's written in the Bible. But hell is not hell because of the fire. Hell is hell because that relationship has been shattered permanently. And the feeling of impending doom when you realize that this is really going to go, gone. Now get back to heaven. And we think it's a relationship that is the most precious. You can test it out, you know. You look at a lover sitting together and go and tell one of them, hey, why don't you kind of have a, a good uh, exchange? I'll take your lover. Here's a diamond. Hey, maybe two diamonds. I'll throw in a ruby. Maybe an emerald. Boy, I'll get booted out of that place in, in, in two minutes. Nothing can take the place of loving relationships. It is your greatest treasure. Therefore, hell is a breaking of that permanently. And when you do that with another brother and sister of yours here, then that is hell on earth. Don't bring it. Leave hell there. Don't bring it here. Not in your life. And when you and God decide that that's it, over. My decided choice. Permanently, then it becomes hell. For whom? For the person who made the choice. That's what we think, right? But when you make the choice, it becomes hell for both. 
And if it is between God and God, then it has to be torn asunder, then it is worse than hell. Death. The Bible describes two. One is just the consequence. You do something and it's just the consequence that happens. And it is temporary. From this temporary death, you will rise up again. That can be a resurrection. But there's something also known as the other death, the second death, which is permanent. The first one falls on everyone, kind of, everyone. The second one is meted out only to those who have made a settled, definitive, and final choice on the wrong side. Only they have meted out to them the second death. So the word death has two meanings. But Hebrews 2, verse 9, uses a very peculiar phrase, the suffering of death. Hey, it's not saying death. Suffering of death. Well, then, the suffering happens when you're alive. You cannot suffer death once you're dead. It's gone. So the suffering of death must take place when you are alive. It, the last few words of that text says, tasting death. How do you taste when you're dead? No. You taste dead, death and you suffer death when you are alive. It is a sense of impending doom. Permanent. You can't do anything about it. And it's horrible. That's when you suffer that death. It's actually hell. So with these words, let's go to the story. The Passover meal is just settled, set. They got up from that upper room and made their way towards a garden. Outside it's full moon. Do you know that every Passover has to be full moon because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar? So you start the first day of the month, new moon. So 14th will have to be full moon. It was full moon that night. Peaceful except for one individual. He was struggling. And we read in the Gospels, Matthew 26, if you want to go there, he was staggering. And his friends looked at him and said, hey, what's, what's happening here? And he turned to them and said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Then he's reaches the garden and he says, you, you, you guys, please stay here. I want to go a little further to pray. Then he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he goes a little further and he says, no, you also wait here. You're not going to see me. You're not going to see my face when I'm dealing with this. You just stay there and pray. I need your prayers. And while he's walking, 
I don't know whether he reached the place, but the record says he fell flat on his face. And he clutched the ground and he said, hey, what do we hear? Abba. Isn't it enough? I cannot carry on. Can we take this cup, please, and put it here, not in front of me, please? I just cannot carry on. It is too much. I cannot bear this, my father. Hey, what's happening here? Isn't this the guy who stood before the storm and said, hey, you demons whipping up the waves, stop it right now. And everything became calm. He went to the blind and he said, mm, sight, come back. I'm asking you to come back. He went to the paralytic and said, whether you are weak or whether you are strong, I am telling you to walk, stand up and walk. Take your bed also and walk. And then he did it. He would face the demons and they would just tremble and say, please, please, anywhere, don't deal with us, send us to the pigs. He would go to the front of a corpse, stand in front of a corpse and say, stand up and come back to life. I am telling you that. And the corpse comes back to life. What's happening here? Hey, lost faith. Suddenly began to whimper. Became too, too kind of close for him. A little uncomfortable now. Shouting out, can you please spare me from this? Compare that with Hus. That intrepid warrior for God. Hus, when he was burned at the stake, it was customary for them to put the faggots around the stake, and the one who would light the stake would bring the torch to the back and light it from the back. That was customary. When Hus was being burned at the stake, he called out to the man who was bringing the torch to light the fire, and he said, hey, don't go to the back. Come in front of my face and light it in front of my face. If I was afraid, I wouldn't be here. How about the women and the children in the Colosseums of Rome? They could hear those gates rattling and going to be open in just two minutes. And what did they do? They held hands, formed a little circle, and began to sing unto God who washed us in his blood. Hey, if those people could do that, why isn't this man singing? What's happening here? Now most of us think when we look at the cross we see a few things. Number one is hate. The Jews hated the Romans with a passion. I mean they couldn't stand each other. And yet when it came to Jesus they got together and poured their combined hatred onto this single one individual. Hate. There was also shame. Physical shame. Those who were crucified in those days were always crucified stark naked. Physical shame. There was also mental and social shame. Your own people threw you out. There was spiritual shame. Because the Torah 
clearly stated that if ever you are given the capital punishment, and that punishment is by hanging, then everybody should know that that person who was hanged was cursed of God. Deuteronomy. Shame. And yet the record says he despised the shame. But there was shame. There was also physical suffering. No question about it. The Romans had, had kind of invented that. It would give you the greatest pain. And you did not die of blood loss. You died of suffocation. And therefore it would go on and on, hour after hour, day after day. The average person who hung on the cross to die hung there for three days before he died. And there, were, there are instances when we know that some of them hung on there for seven days before dying. They would nail them to the cross, then pick up the whole cross, take it to the place where they're supposed to put it on the ground, and just drop it. Boom. Shoulders dislocated. And then your shoulders would press in into your neck. And then the blood supply to the brain is slowly getting less and less. And within a few hours, you lose your mind and scream and shout and curse God and man. So there was physical suffering. And most people point to say, look at the thorns. Look at the nails. Look at the spear in his side. Look at my Savior dying. Wait a minute. If that was his suffering, then he should have been able to sing through it all because the others sang through something similar. Why wasn't he singing? Jesus did not come to just die on a cross. First of all, crucifixion did not kill Jesus. He should hang there for three days at least. Then we would say that the cross killed him. He did not come to die on a cross only. He came to buy salvation for you and me. And if we say that the cross and the nails and the thorns and the spear is what bought your salvation, then what we are saying is that Satan and Pilate and the Roman soldiers and the priests and the rulers uh, got together with God and started working out our salvation. But that did not happen. It may have happened at the same place, but they are two entirely different events. Only God was working out salvation, not Satan. So no thorn, no spear, no cross, no, no, no lashing bought your salvation or mine. Then what did? For that, we've got to go back in history. Because in Revelation, the 13th chapter and the 8th verse, it says that he was a lamb slain from when? Foundation. foundation. Hey, were you there in the foundation? No, nobody was there, not even Adam. So there had to be something that was said way back there. When we look at the relationship between God and man in the Bible, we often make it into two covenants. Have you heard that? Old Covenant, New Covenant, Sinai Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant. Right? First, second. These are all covenants between God and humans. If it was before the foundation of the world, 
something had to take place, and it had to be something in which they embarked on an endeavor. And to do that with more than one individual, you've got to agree. So there had to be an agreement at that point. I call it the primary covenant. It is the primary covenant that saves, my friend, not the first or the second. Wherever humans come into the picture, it's a failure, whether it's first or second. This primary covenant was not made between God and humans. This primary covenant was made between God and God. And they clasped hands, as it were, and entered into a binding oath that ever, if ever man fell, they would bring man back to paradise at any cost to themselves. That is the covenant that saves. And God uses the other covenants as kind of stepping stones. But this is that saves. But in that covenant, somebody had to do something. Somebody had to come down and become human. The word, the second person, whose name finally became Jesus, he volunteered to come down and become a human. But if you become a human, you can't stop becoming God. You have still have to be God. So how do you do it? You know, when I think of this, I really think that it's kind of uh, understatement, overstatement, I don't know. I think it's absolutely genius the way they did it. Even genius is kind of an, a humiliating term. We call each other geniuses, you know. But something, that's something that grips me, how they do it. But anyway, here's what they decided. You will go to become a human, and the way you do it is not to stop being God, but to lay aside all the rights and privileges and prerogatives of God. Lay it aside. And then be born as a little babe, as a human. But humanity had already flunked the test in Adam. So now if he must become that kind of a human, wow, that's risky. Pretty big risk. So one more genius idea. You will lay aside the prerogatives of God. You will take on the fallen human nature of man, but you will deny that nature, not live by that nature, but you will live by the morality and the strength and the wisdom that your father would supply moment by moment. I used to wonder, how come he spent nights in prayer? After 10 minutes, I'm done. <laughs> what more to say? He would spend nights. And like I said, look, I've got the mic so I can say what I want, okay? <laughs> I think one of the things he spent was telling his dad, hey, yesterday was a good day, you know? This is what happened. Oh, thanks, thanks, you were there. And then, tomorrow. 
son, those priests and rulers are pretty crafty. It's not that they are smart. They know how, how to make you lose your balance. And they will say things that will make you mad. Remember, you're a human. You will get mad. But just before you do, look to me. I will stop you from getting mad. I will be right there. When you have to, when the people ask you, what is the truth of the matter? And you kind of start thinking, what shall I say? Son, you don't have any wisdom. Turn to me. I will tell you what to say. When you want to perform a miracle, like this guy who comes tomorrow, this, this leper is going to come to you tomorrow. And he looks horrible. And when you look at that leper, you'll wonder, how can this guy be healed? And your faith will tend to fail. You don't have the strength or the wisdom or the power to heal him. Turn to me. I have that power. I'll give it to you. You will heal that leper tomorrow. Go, son. Go. Every day. Every day was chalked out. Every day he asked from his father. There was not a single statement, not a single parable, not a single doctrine, not a single miracle that he ever performed without the express permission and the power and the wisdom of his father. That is why in John 5.30 he says, I can of myself do how much? Nothing. And then in chapter 12 and towards the end, 49th verse, he says, even the words that I say, I got from him. Every word from him. And in turn, his father was the absolutely rock-like, dependable, changeless source of everything he needed. Nobody could fool him up. Nobody could trip him up. Nobody could make him angry. Nobody could make him sin because his father was right there and he was dependent on the father. The people tried to, you know, get to him physically too, even from Herod, kill him off. There were more than one time, John 7, 20, they tried to do it, but none of them could touch him. Why? Because his father was there. And when the father is there, who said, his time has not yet come, you can't touch him at all. That's it. The same thing as John 8.30. You can't touch him. His time has not yet come. I'm taking care of him. And don't you dare touch my son. Then something happened. With all the confidence he had in his father, he could stand up and say, I'm going to heal this guy. I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to tell this parable. I'm going to teach you guys all. I'm going to make miracle after miracle. I'm going to heal the, the sick, raise the dead. But suddenly, after the Passover meal, all that confidence is gone. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. And then when he goes into the garden, his sweat becomes like blood. Hey, what is happening here? You know that 
sweaty, the bloody sweat is a physiological phenomenon. It can occur under severe stress and grief. The blood vessels can rupture in your sweat glands and then come out as sweat, bloody sweat. So what's happening here? It's a complete paradigm shift, my friends, my dear fellow pilgrims. For the lion of the tribe of Judah was now becoming the sacrificial lamb of God. And in the Jewish sacrificial system, the sacrificial lamb had to meet a criterion. He had to bear sin. And so on this man, never known what sin was in experience, never even thought that he would ever do anything against his father. His heart was clear, clean before his father. On this man was laid the sins of the whole world from Adam to the last one who would ever live. And many of us think that, well, he was, you know, they gave him it like a big load on his head maybe. Or maybe something big like, you know, heavy on his, in his hands. Or maybe a cloak like this, the sin. No, it's very peculiar because when he spoke to his father, he says, take this cup. A cup is meant to hold something in it. What was in that cup? He took a peek. It was the deadliest poison in the universe called sin, full to the brim. So I'm supposed to drink this? If I drink this most potent poison, I will not survive. Do I have to drink it? Okay. If you want it, I will. And once you drink, it is not the cloak, my friends. It is no longer a load in your hands. It is in you. And therefore, Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him not just to bear sin, but to be sin. And sin and a holy, righteous God cannot coexist. God was dealing with sin. And therefore, in Romans, the fourth chapter and the 25th verse, it says, He was delivered up for our offenses. Delivered up to whom? To what? To Pilate? The Roman soldiers? Chief priests and rulers? No, 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 no. He was delivered up to the full and final punishment of sin. God, a holy, righteous God, sin, no, you cannot exist. So they have to move apart. And hanging alone and forsaken on the cross that day, there was only one place in the entire universe that had sin. It was that center cross. And from that center cross, 
the holy, righteous God had to separate himself and send the sin bearer to the full and final punishment of sin called hell. How his soul loathed it. Will our relationship be broken, really broken? I have never felt it before, Father, never. Is it going to be really broken? This is the fundamental difference between Jesus and every other martyr on earth. Every other martyr had God right there. His sustaining, comforting presence was there. The angels were just around there, giving you the assurance, hey, you're on God's side. Stand fast. And you can go through any amount of suffering. My friends, with God on your side, you can face any circumstances on earth and still sing. But when God is taken off, when the line between you and God is fractured, nobody can sing, not even the Son of God. For the source of the song has gone. How can you sing? That is the difference between every martyr, my friends. And this separation began in Gethsemane. He hated it. That's the cry. Can we not do something else? Can I put this cup here, not here? And hour after hour, the separation became worse and worse. Sometime after Gethsemane, the father fell silent because he cannot have any truck with sin. Dad? Silence. Abba? Silence. Abba? Where are you? Look, Abba. It was on your strength, your morality, your wisdom, your words that I so boldly told everybody that if you kill me, I will rise up the third day. Is that true? <coughs> Silence. Abba. I know I agreed. I'm not going to draw back. But please, Abba, one word. Give me one word and that'll be enough. Silence. Where are you when now I need you the most? And then as the idea and the recognition dawned on him that this was the punishment for sin by a righteous God. This was a judgment to which there would be no repeal. This was a street marked no return. There was pulled out from those pale, parched, quivering lips the bitterest cry this universe will ever hear. Eloi! Eloi lama sabachthani! My God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you now when I need you the most? Where are you? This is the cry 
of a soul that has been utterly abandoned. The cry when the canon of justice points and there is no mercy to shift it away. This is the cry when the ax is just about to come down and there's nothing that will change its direction of fall. This was the central act of the mercy of God. The ax was supposed to fall on us, the mercy directed here. It was a cry from the depths of his soul and is the description of a cry that was sinking into hell itself. God was being torn from God, which is worse than hell. But in the midst of that superhuman agony, there was one flinging, stinging temptation that came to him. The Jews, uh, their leaders were there. They came right around the cross. Hey, you said you were the son of God? Do you think you look like it? Do you think you feel like it? Well, let's make a pact. You come down, and we will believe you're the son of God. How much like us? Please, God, just do a miracle. Then I'll be on your side, you know. Do something kind of unusual. Kind of grip me, God. Do something. And all the while, that very miracle is staring you in the face. They were asking for a miracle so that they could believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And right before them was the greatest miracle of all. For which is greater, to come down or to just stay dangling there in torturous pain out of sheer love? They did not know that he was hanging there because he was the Son of God. For him to come down would have controverted the very fabric of his character. But then for whom was he dying? Who was he dying for? Look, your own people went to the Romans and got you condemned. Your own priests and rulers, mind you. Your own disciples, where are they? Not a single one here. One of your own disciples betrayed you. One of your inner circle swore that he didn't even know your name. Who are you dying for? How dark the prospect of dying for hardly anything to show. And yet he went through voluntarily Finally, my fellow pilgrims, my brothers and sisters, the cross is just a choice. One goes this way, the other goes that way. A simple, single, piercing choice. Save yourself or save this world of blundering wretches. Was there a choice? The majesty of heaven the beloved commander of the whole heavenly host, and you and me, blundering, ruthless, boastful, self-seekers, a bunch of us, what's, what's the choice? And yet he made the choice. 
because love has no reason. Agape love has no reason. It just exhibits and expresses itself. But there was a factor, I think, and like I said, you're giving me the liberty to say it like I want to say it. There was one factor that caused him to just kind of turn and make his choice this side, and he stayed hanging there. What was that factor? I'm going to make it personal. You can make it personal for yourself. The factor was my face. He saw me 2,000 years later, all bruised and battered, weak and woeful, helplessly, hopelessly sliding down a slope straight to perdition and to hell. And he did not want me to go there. He was already tasting it. While he was tasting it, he said, no, no, no way for this man, not Dr. Pandit. And there welled up in his heart such a wondrous compassion for me, he forgot about himself. And then he turned to me and you, and in the most brilliant, clearest demonstration of righteousness, what's the definition of righteousness? You first, not I. In the most brilliant demonstration of righteousness, hanging on the cross, he turned to me and you and he said, you first, not I. And he turned to his father and said, well, if that's the choice, then take them to heaven. As for me, goodbye forever. And somewhere along those hours, as he hung on the cross, the father cut himself off from his son in a consummate act of justice against sin. And with the hiding of his father's face, went the hope of resurrection. He could not see beyond the portals of the tomb. He died with you and me, not himself, on his mind. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? In this is love, our text, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. But come the third day, he rose up. Oh, wow. This is kind of a jarring thing. He was supposed to die. He gave, his, he gave up his life as a sacrifice. How come he rose up again? L brush off the leaves of our own opinions. And let's come to the crux of how come he rose up again. He was God. He had never stopped being God. Even the slightest Insult to a God who dwells in the realm of infinity becomes infinite insult. Even the slightest humiliation to one who is in the realm of infinity becomes infinite humiliation. Even the slightest suffering to, to one who is infinite in nature becomes infinite suffering. And therefore, this suffering, hey, it was not light, little or light. It was horrendous suffering. Horrendous suffering to a God was infinite suffering. And he shall see 
the agonizing travail of his soul and shall be satisfied that justice was done for every single sin from bringing from Adam to the last one who will ever live. Everything covered. This infinite sacrifice. And he himself had never sinned. Justice would still be maintained if you got him up. Because he himself had never sinned. And so when the angel Gabriel came to the tomb and simply pushed aside the door and he said, your father calls for you. From the depths of that abyss and darkness he came with life that was his own, original, underived, unborrowed, but with an eternal difference. He had sacrificed it. Now he couldn't have it all by himself. He would have to share it now with whosoever believes. And that's why we read in Romans the 8th chapter and the 29th verse. Whom he did predestinate, he also conformed to make him the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Before the cross, he was the only begotten of the Father. After the cross, he was the firstborn among brothers and sisters. And who are they? Whosoever believes. You and me. Hebrews, the second chapter and the eleventh verse. He who sanctifies... And they who are being sanctified are all of one. One blood. One family. One race. The family of heaven and the family of earth have become one. Therefore, says that same verse, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Hey, who should be ashamed and who should not be ashamed? He is not ashamed to call you and me his brothers and sisters. But we, mm-hmm. You still knocking at the door? How many times do I tell you? Go to the next door. Not here. I got to check it out whether it's worth my time and effort for you. Understood? Whether it's worth my time and effort. Can you go to the next door? Fellow pilgrims, he is not ashamed of us. Why are you ashamed? In every religion on earth, it is the human who must bring a sacrifice to God. Christianity is the only religion where God brings his sacrifice to you and says, is there a chance that you might accept my sacrifice for you? Would you give it some consideration. I'll wait here at the door. I'm a gentleman. I'll knock. But will you, could you possibly think 
that you might accept my sacrifice for you? What is your response, my friends? Did you allow me to speak my own words? Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. I did. I've spoken this many times, scores of times, and many times in secular universities. But every time my, ch my voice still chokes. It's amazing what this God is. And that is why somebody wrote, <laughs> to know him is to love him. What is your response? We're going to sing the closing song, 312. And those of you who will be leading out, you can come up. And I am going to call for a commitment today. You remember last night I said I'm not going to call for a commitment. But today I am going to call for a commitment. And it is very, very specific. Is there somebody here who has never yet accepted this man as your man? But you now realize that he is unique. And not just being unique, he has a unique love for you. You've never been baptized. That's the call. Never been baptized. You've never taken his name in a serious way. Is there anyone here? I would like you to please come up to the left side here. While we sing the first stanza of Jesus keep me near the cross. Please come. No force. He never asks you to go against your mind. Just come. not the question of him being ashamed he is rejoicing the second call very specific you haven't been baptized you're not making a firm commitment you would really like to know some more about this man and if you really want to know you know from deep inside and you want to have somebody take you through what is written in this book about this man, 
would you come to the right side? We will help you look into the book and let it describe to you what this man really is. Then you can make your decision. So while we sing the second stanza, may I call anyone who wants to know more about this man to please come to the right side. We sing the second stanza. and you've professed his name but you've been sometimes ashamed but today you're going to take those words from Romans 8.29 and from Hebrews 2.11 he is not ashamed of me so I am not ever going to be ashamed of him. If you've made up your mind on that one point, you will not draw back. You are going to go on and speak boldly, no matter how softly, boldly, you will never be ashamed. Come up. Occupy this front seat. Never again will you be ashamed of this man. The third stanza. Before 
we sing the final stanza. I know there are some who still have to make up their minds. There's always opportunity, my friends. So if you didn't stand up now and didn't come up now, think about it. And when you do make up your mind on which side you want to be, get somebody, maybe the leadership of the GYC West, maybe the pastoral team here at Weimar, maybe the pastor close by where you live in that church. The door is always open. Go. You will never regret it. Let's sing the last stanza. It's my privilege to come down with you. Let's make a little circle. I too make up my mind that I shall not ever be ashamed of him. Let's pray. God, our heavenly Father, wonderful, great, marvelous. I do not know how you sent your son, but you did. There are no words that I can say, God, to really thank you for that unspeakable gift. And you give it to us free. Here's my heart. Here's my life. Do anything you want with it. Because in your hands, is the safest place my life can ever be. Take these decisions, God. You can see every heart. We want to follow you in spirit and in the truth of your word. Amen. Let nothing stop that, God. May your spirit stand always with us. Hold our hands. Point us the way. Lead us. We are willing to follow. Take our consecration now, great God, and seal it with your own spirit in our hearts. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.